This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to another episode of Blush. I'm your host, Tiva, and I honestly like completely blanked out on how I start the show every week. For a second, I was like, wait, what do I what do I say in the beginning again? I feel like there's the thing that I say every week, but I can't remember what it is. Um, here we are. I'm your host, Tiva. I think I said that already. It's the Blush Podcast. I think I said that already. Should we just get straight into it? Um, I feel like I haven't like connected with you guys in so long because last week we had Dr. Dahlia on, which was so fun. Got so much good feedback. You guys all loved her. I'd love to have her on kind of regularly. So maybe we can do like a medical Q&A type segment with Dr. Dahlia every couple of months or something like that. So you guys can start sending in questions, etc. that you have for you know, an MD. And that's something that we can do. Um, but yeah, it was so amazing. But like, I didn't get to talk to you guys like directly about everything that's been going on. And it was a really active week, the week before last week, <laughs> two weeks ago, you know, you got the drift, uh, drill drift. Oh my God. Okay. Anyway, let's just move right along. So that Thursday, like January the 5th, I wake up in the morning and Sam, my dog, is like being real weird. Like, you know how this is the best way I can describe it. If you stare down at a dog from the top, you would see kind of like a straight line from their head to their tail, right? And that's kind of how they walk. But my dog was <laughs> curved like a C. So her <laughs> head was like tilted to the right towards her right hip and I was like that's that's definitely not normal um and she kept walking like that and the thing is she will do that if her ear itches because she used to be paralyzed and she can't balance on one back leg so if her ear itches she'll often kind of curve like that as though she's trying to throw up the back leg and then I'll come in and scratch her ear so I kept scratching her ear but she kept doing it. And I was like, okay, this is like really freaking me out. So I take her to the hospital, which is like all the way on the Upper East Side. Although it was shockingly quick to get to. Apparently there's some kind of highway on the East Side called like the FDR and it can really get you up there real quick. Anyway, um, so we go to the animal hospital and they're like, yeah, totally. I get what you're saying. It was definitely the right decision to bring her in. There's a bit of a wait, but like whatever. Um, so we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And like all this shit is going down. A sphinx cat enters the hospital. Um, something you might not know about me. I have this like weird fixation with sphinx cats. Like I just think they're so like, I don't know what the word is. You know what it used to be? Like, I remember when I first saw a photo of, of one when I was in high school, I was like, oh, that's a fucking like weird ass looking cat. Like, why does it look like that? It looks like weird as shit. And then I kept looking at photos of it and something happened where I went from being like kind of repulsed by them or like 
I don't know, like thinking they're so weird to like, I still think they're so weird, but like, I almost want one. Like, I just want to interact with one. So a Sphinx cat walked by, ended up talking to the Sphinx cat for a while with the owner, really not so much the cat itself. And she's like kind of Insta famous and she's so cute. And they just like, why are their bellies so big? I don't know. They're so interesting. So there was a Sphinx cat. Um, there was this Great Dane there that was like literally the size of a pony, literally the size of a pony um, that kept set, sitting on my lap. Like it would stand in front of me and then back its butt up onto my lap and just like sit down. It was so cute and just put all of its weight onto my lap, even though it was like literally the size of a horse. Um a lot of shit. There were a lot of police dogs there, like canines. Apparently, they're called working dogs, which to me sounds so much like working girl. Do you remember? Do you remember like back in like toxic days, we used to call sex workers working girls sometimes? Um, but yeah, it sounded so much like that to me. And I was like, mm, that phraseology makes me like a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> But sure, let's call them working dogs. So yeah, I met a bunch of working dogs. Um, apparently, they have a lot of hospital needs. I mean, a lot of shit went down in that hospital. We were there for six fucking hours. She turned out to be perfectly fine. And I have to say, from the time we were at the hospital, she seemed totally fine. And I was like, I'm feeling like kind of embarrassed because it seems like she's perfectly fine. But like, I swear she was like a croissant this morning. So <laughs> it doesn't like I'm not crazy. And they're like, no, honestly, like you did the right thing by bringing her in. <laughs> But um, they examined her like over and over and over again and really concluded that she's perfectly fine. So that's great. Um, and then that night we had the Showfields event, which was the best Showfields event we've done yet. The entire room was packed like it was so sick. It was massive turnout, like such a fun crowd, just such a fun time. Like Martina over at Showfields is like such a fucking legend she's so good at her job and she's she's just so good at creating like an atmosphere and an event and like yeah I don't know I'm so grateful for her because wanting to do live events is like literally from minute one of conceiving of the podcast been like my biggest goal and obviously, I mean, I have like other goals of like how that'll look in the future but just the fact that I get to speak live to some of you guys like it's such a fun experience for me so I'm so grateful to those of you who are showing up there's another one this week this Thursday on the 19th roll through it's a free event um there are refreshments and you know you get to talk to me which might not be a pro I don't know but there's free drinks and food, so kind of a no-brainer, right? Um, it's at 6 to 8 p.m. at Trophyolds in Manhattan on Lafayette Street, so roll through. Would love to see more of you. Um, okay, what else? Oh, yeah, I bought tickets to go to Australia, so I leave on January 31st, which means I get there February 2nd which is like kind of fucking wild, but it's because of the time difference. It really takes like 23 hours to get there. But um, because of the time difference, it ends up being like a full day later. Um, and I come back the beginning of March. Um, I will still be podcasting while I'm out there. Um, most likely alone, although I really would love to get Ozzy's 
auntie on the pod. She's funny and she's fun and she's been in she's been married for so long. So part of my vision is like, you know, getting someone who's been married for like whatever 30 ish, I guess. I don't know. God, I'm so bad with like these types of numbers when it's like guesstimating age and time span and things like that. I'm not very good at it. I mean, case in point, I'm still convinced that the 80s were 20 years ago. Like you just you really can't like I understand that numerically they were not, but like energetically they were right. But then at the same time, like so much shit has happened since then. So who knows? Whatever. Um, But yeah, that's that's kind of a goal, although I don't know if she would do it. I've never asked her. Um, maybe like if I get her drunk, I'll ask her. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the big life updates from me. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Okay. There's like a bunch of random shit I also want to talk about. (laughs) Like, it's just when I don't do these solo podcasts like I just see like I didn't do it for one week like the amount of backlog and like things that I need to rant and rave about start getting out of control okay so I learned this again a couple weeks ago and I've been dying to tell you guys like really for like I don't know if anyone's gonna care but it's kind of like a fun you know dinner party drop maybe if you're someone who like is dating you're going on dates this is you know, it'll make you sound smart and interesting. So I'm going to backtrack a while. So when I first moved to New York, I was dating the comedian and whatever. And then like (laughs) within minutes, it feels like we broke up. And I was like in a really bad place because I was so like attached to him and attached to the idea of this relationship that I really couldn't accept that it was over. Plus, like I had all these like crazy things where I was like convinced that we were soulmates because of like how everything played out, etc. Um, so all this stuff just like had me completely unable to accept that it was over. Plus, like I was in a new city where I knew no one. And so all of a sudden I was like completely like by myself having to just like navigate life, knowing like zero people up here. Um, So there was like all this stuff. Right. And um, I remember I was just in a really, really dark place, like for almost a full year, maybe. I feel like I would talk to my brother constantly and he would like I was constantly crying and like getting reassurance from him and stuff like that. And I remember at some point he was like, he said something like, oh, yeah, like, I don't know. He was complimenting me in some way. And then he goes, I swear, like, I'm not even like blowing smoke up your ass. And I started laughing and I was like, what a strange expression, because obviously it means to like be doing this like really nice thing for someone. Right. It's like, oh, I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass means like, oh, I'm not just flattering you like I actually mean it. Right. But like when you think about it, it's like, who would want that? Like the last good thing, like to me, it almost sounds like if if you were an alien who just plopped down on this planet for the first day, if you just heard that expression and you were just kind of like putting pieces of things together as someone who, you know, owns an ass and an asshole, you'd probably be like, oh, this must be a really, really bad thing. Because if I were to just think of like things that could happen to me, someone blowing smoke up my ass just kind of sounds like an all-around negative, you know? Like, it doesn't sound like something that I would want to happen to me. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't, like, I haven't done a ton of butt stuff. Um, 
So like my experiences with butt stuffs all in all tend to like be less pleasant. Like I, as a kid, would constantly have like constipation issues, et cetera. And I remember I'd have to get suppositories a lot. Like that was like a method that I would have to take in medication. I'm not sure if they were like suppository laxatives or if it was, I think it was sometimes like my medication that I'd have to take orally would have to come to me rectally because I sometimes like wasn't holding it down or something. I'm not entirely sure sure, but I have vivid memories of my childhood. And I was like a pretty well-behaved child. But when it was suppository time, I would run away and would have to be like chased down (laughs) and basically like anally raped (laughs) with medication. (laughs) And so like, I remember thinking that was not so fun. Like clearly it was so bad that I was physically running away thinking like, what did I think I was going to just be able to do that for the rest of my life? Like evade it? I don't know. Anyway, I don't have like too many memories, but I do remember it being really, really bad. And then over the summer, I remember talking about getting a colonoscopy or not a colonoscopy, excuse me. Um, What are they called? Not an enema, a colonic, a colonic. And um, I also did not really enjoy the process of putting the sprout inside of my asshole and just, you know, the fact that there was something chilling inside of my asshole. Not to put down anal, I hear it's very, very fun. I'm not sure that it's for me in this lifetime. I just, I'm so sensitive about butt stuff, my butthole. Although when I take my dog to the vet, if they take her temperature rectally, she will poop every single time without fail. It's to the point now where sometimes like I'll go in and they're like, do you have a stool sample? And I'm like, no, I don't have a stool sample because no one told me that I should bring a stool sample. In the future, if you want me to bring a stool sample, just tell me to bring a stool sample. And I will. It's not that hard. Like I'm picking up her poop anyway. I could just bring it a few feet. But if you don't tell me that you want a stool sample, no, I just I don't just walk around my, with my dog's shit in her pockets all the time just in case you guys need a stool sample. Like you need to communicate this type of thing ahead of time. Anyway, um, anytime they ask, I'm like, no, I do not. But if you want one, if you just put something in her butt, you shall have one. <laughs> and I always like wonder if that makes me sound really creepy because this vet doesn't take her temperature rectally. So I know this from her old vet, but like, so I don't know if they wonder if there's like some questionable things going on in her household. There are not. Um, Anyway, how are we on this bizarrely long tangent? Oh, okay. So, I mean, sometimes when I see them, you know, just like put a little finger in and she just shits everywhere. I'm like, hmm, would anal help my chronic constipation? Oh, that also reminds me. I went to see Dr. Dahlia last week, um, like as like a primary care doctor. I was like, I need like a good primary care doctor who actually like gives a shit about me because I don't really have that in the city. And so, yeah, I went, we did a bunch of tests and she talked about pelvic floor therapy and how it could hypothetically be helpful 
for my constipation issues because like it's probably at least in part psychosomatic you know because I think especially as women we're like constantly trained to like be holding it and like don't poo in public and don't poo here and like women don't poo and like you know like the good old days where we were just shitting as we walked and our diapers are long gone anyway so I'm gonna try out pelvic floor therapy I'm exceptionally excited about it. Um, I will definitely report back. It's probably not going to be until after I get back from Australia because I'm leaving so soon, like less than two weeks, which is giving me a bit of anxiety to be completely honest because I have about 7 million things that I need to do before I go. Um, oh my God. Okay. Going back to blowing smoke up someone's ass. So In conclusion, it just sounds like an unpleasant thing to me because my experiences with just like stuff going inside my asshole has like generally been on the unpleasant side. Now, have I like dated a guy or two who like wanted to put a finger up there? One that I can think of. It's whatever. I don't know. Anyway, um, it's just, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm just moving right along. It just, it always struck me as something that like is not the thing that you want to happen to you. But there is a history to this phrase that will shock you. And I mean, literally jaw on the floor, shock you. So this phrase is is actually like quite literal. Apparently, and this is what I heard, and I have pulled up an article that I have not read, but I will just read it out loud because that's everyone's favorite favorite segment on the show. It's when I pretend that I know how to read out loud, but I actually fuck up like every single word. Like what is wrong with me? Also, I'm like exceptionally marble mouthy today, so it should really be fun. But this was my understanding of how I was told the expression came about, we will fact check with said article in one minute. So apparently um, in the, I want to say 18th century was how I was told the story. Yeah, the 18th century, which would be the 1700s in the UK, people would drown a lot. <laughs> now, why people were drowning a lot, I don't know. I That, to me, is, like, so much more interesting on some level. Like, I guess um, the UK, like, has a lot of, you know, water borders. That is definitely not what we call them, but I can't think of the word, so we're just going to roll with that one. Water borders. Um, you know, it has a lot of coastlines, right? But, like, why? I mean... <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand. Like, were people just like trying to stay on the shore and then a wave pulled them out and like people just didn't really notice? So, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but apparently people were drowning all the time. And a common practice in the 18th century in the UK was to literally, as a drowning remedy, blow tobacco smoke up people's assholes into their colons as a way of resuscitating them. Now, was it effective? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is just like an old timey thing of like, well, they're waterlogged, so let's blow air in them. Uh, I don't know. Or, I mean, tobacco is a stimulant. So I could see how ingesting tobacco in any way, shape, or form could stimulate you to, I don't know, get energy back. And I guess if you're like kind of unconscious, then it would make sense that a good way of getting the tobacco inside of you is to blow 
it up your asshole. Again, we're going to fact check all of this with the article. But um, the rest of what I was told is like people were encouraged to carry these like essentially tobacco enema kits around with them. And originally you would literally like you would basically like put this like tube in their asshole and then there was like whatever the tobacco pack and then you blow on the other end of it. But they started upgrading those um, kits to include a bellows so that you could manually pump it to blow the smoke up rather than like blow it with your mouth because people would accidentally inhale and then get really, really sick because like, you know, they're getting in like the air from inside someone's asshole, like inside their colon. And, you know, at the time people were more sick and like probably didn't have like super great gut health. And in particular, there was like one specific disease that if people had this disease, then the blower of the smoke, if they accidentally inhaled, would die. Okay, that is the information as I was fed it. Now we're going to read um, this article together because, because this is what we do on the podcast. But like, I mean, listen, are you not already like, oh, this is going to make for a really fucking good story to tell someone and you will not only be interesting, but you'll seem like you're someone who knows a lot about language and words and history. Like you're smart, you're cultured, you're, you know a lot, you have wild and crazy stories. You're going to be the bell of the fucking ball. So you're welcome. Okay, here we go. Oh, you're just blowing smoke up my ass is something you might hear someone say when they think you're just telling them what they want to hear. But in 18th century England, I was right about the 18th century, blowing smoke up your ass was an actual medical procedure. And no, we aren't kidding. According to Gizmodo, I'm not fully familiar with that publication, so I'm not sure how reliable it is. Um, One of the earliest reports of such practice took place in England in 1746 when a woman was left unconscious after nearly drowning. Her husband allegedly took the suggestion of administering a tobacco enema to revive her, a practice that was rising in popularity at the time as a possible answer to the frequent local instances of drowning. I'm so sorry that I laugh at that. I don't know why I think it's so funny that people were drowning all the time but like something about it to me is clearly funny like I don't know like stop going in the water if this keeps happening (laughs) okay left with little choice the man took a tobacco-filled pipe inserted the stem into his wife's rectum and well blew a bunch of smoke up there as strange as it may sound it reportedly worked the hot embers of the tobacco leaf jolting the wife back into consciousness and the practice grew quickly from there. But where did the idea to use tobacco as a form of medicine come from? Indigenous Americans who used the plant to treat various ailments invested in, oh, invented, sorry, invented what we refer to as the tobacco enema. English botanist, physician, and astrologer Nicholas Culpepper borrowed from these practices to treat pain in his native England with methods including enemas to treat inflammation as a result of colic or a hernia. Hmm. Years later, English physician Richard Mead would be amongst among the earliest pro- proponents of using the herbal enema as a recognized practice and helped bring its use, however short-lived, into mainstream culture. By the late 1700s, bl- the blowing smoke had become regularly applied 
had become a regularly applied medical procedure, mostly used to revive people thought to be nearly deceased, usually drowning victims. Again, why are there so many drowning victims? This is what we need an expose on. Anyway, the process was so common, in fact, that several major waterways kept the instrument consisting of a bellows and flexible tube nearly in case nearby in case of emergencies. <sighs> The tobacco smoke was believed to increase the heart rate of the victim and encourage respiratory functions as well as to, quote unquote, dry out the insides of the waterlogged individual, making this method of delivery more preferred than breathing air directly into the lungs via the mouth. There you go. It was all of my predictions. Look at that. She's a fucking genius. Who would have seen this coming based on like my reading level grade three performance? Um, okay, before the implementation of an official instrument, tobacco enemas were administered were typically administered with a standard smoking pipe. That seems very difficult, I have to say. Ooh, there was a textbook drawing of the tobacco smoke enema device from 1776, which, as I recall it, was kind of a hard year for England. <laughs> but let's move right along. This proved to be an impractical solution as the stem of the pipe was much shorter than the tube of the instrument that would come later, making both the spread of diseases such as cholera, is that a disease that I should know about? And the accidental inhal inhalation of the contents of the patient's anal cavity, an unfortunate yet common possibility. With the tobacco enemas rise in popularity in full swing, London doctors William Hawes and Thomas Cogan together formed the Institution for Affording Immediate Relief to Persons Apparently Dead from Drowning. In 1774. Okay, again, drowning is such a common phenomena in England that there is now an institute that addresses being able to afford immediate relief to persons apparently dead from drowning. Like, what? Okay. Moving right along, the group was later <laughs> named the Much Simpler Royal Humane Society, Much Simpler, a charitable organization that grants awards for acts of bravery in the saving of human life and also for the restoration of life by resuscitation. It is still in operation today and is now sponsored by the Queen of England. Wow, wouldn't you know it? The Queen of England is sponsoring an organization that started with literally blowing drugs up each other's assholes. Let's move right along. The practice of awarding life-saving citizens has been a hallmark of the society since its inception. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm going to skip some of this. Blowing smoke, of course, is no longer in use today. However, the tobacco enema had a good run in the 18th century, and its usage even spread to treat additional ailments such as typhoid, headache, and stomach cramping. Really? Um, but with the 1811 discovery that tobacco is actually toxic to the cardiac system, however, the popularity of the practice of tobacco smoke enemas dwindled quickly from there. I mean, here's the thing. We can absorb things up our assholes, right? Like, like that's why, um, that's why suppositories work like as a form of ingesting medication, that's why they work because we can absorb things, absorb things from the walls of our colon. That's also like literally how we get nutrients, et cetera. So 
It's just a faster way of getting there rather than going the full direct route from mouth to anus. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. There's like a little italicized portion on the bottom that I just caught my eye. For more medical marvels and curiosities like tobacco smoke enemas, check out the most painful medical procedures of medieval times and the hydroelectric belt, which used self-electrocution as a cure for everything from depression to constipation. Okay, as a bitch who suffers from a lot of depression and constipation, I would really like the hydroelectric belt. Is this something I need to be looking into? Um, Moving right along. I mean, what a fascinating history. What a fascinating history. People were literally blowing smoke up each other's assholes because of the arguably more interesting phenomenon that was going on that people were drowning left, right, and center. I mean, you learn something new every fucking day. Okay, let's move right along because I have other shit I want to talk about. Um, I meant to talk about this two episodes ago, but really did not have time because I was just yap, yap, yapping about all sorts of shit the entire time. Okay, I think we need to talk about Venmo. And specifically, I have one thing to say to you. Make your Venmo transactions private unless you want everyone to be able to see them. And there are reasons why you might may want people to see them. So sorry, like literal marble mouths today. Um, But like it blows my mind every time I open Venmo to see how many transactions I can just sit there and see. Now, I will tell you, you cannot see the amount. You can only see who you're sending it to and um, what you write as the subject line. Nevertheless, do you want everyone to see these? I... spent some time looking through Venmo and seeing what the people that I'm quote unquote Venmo friends with, which are like the people that I'm Facebook friends with, by the way, are Venmoing each other. And I have a list of ones that I thought were interesting and I'm going to read them to you. And then, um, yeah. And then I have some thoughts and some comments and some lessons, but really my number one takeaway is like, make your Venmo transactions private. Also, like, you know, you have anxious attachment. If you have at some point in your life, <laughs> Venmo stocked someone that you're into, like you ran out of Instagram stocking, Facebook stocking, et cetera. And you're like, let's hop on over to the Venmo and see what's going on over there. Has he Venmoed anyone recently? And this is coming from a bitch who has done this. And I'm not telling you that you should do it. In fact, I'm telling you, you should not do it. And I'm saying we should all make our transactions private so as to not even um, give anyone the opportunity or the motivation or the incentive or the temptation to be Venmo stalking. Like, don't really, like, honestly, if you have anxious attachment, just stop stalking. I know that it is so tempting and you want to do it so badly and it's, like, hard to resist. But if you can resist it will make you feel so much better if you're not constantly taking in their energy by looking up because you're going to start to spend stories. You're going to be like, oh my God, he Venmoed this person. Like, and there was a pizza emoji. Who else was at pizza? Was this bitch there? Blah, blah, blah. Was this going on? Was this, you're going to start weaving stories. That's going to make you feel so much, so much, so much worse. Like if you're not going to like invest and do the deeper inner work on those attachment 
trauma wounds and like get rid of those and like really move towards secure attachment, that's fine. You don't have to, but at least make lifestyle changes to make it feel more manageable. And one of those would be to just not stock. And it's really, really hard. And if you do the internal work, you won't really have as much of a desire to stock. But, um, it is something I think it's like easier than like not checking your phone 45 times. You know what I mean? To me, like not stalking was an easier boundary to enforce than like don't, you know, check 4,000 times to see if he's texted you. I don't know. Anyway, so here are the Venmo transactions that I jotted down because I thought they were somewhat funny or interesting in some kind of way. And then I have a story about a Venmo transaction that, um, it like happened to like a friend of a friend. So I can't say if it's true. And it sounds like the type of thing that would be one of those urban legends. Like, did you ever hear the story about the snake? I'll tell you what, there's a few of these that like people will always tell is like happened to a friend of a friend. But like, if you've heard the story, it happened to no one. Um, One is like someone took mushrooms and like thought they were a glass of orange juice and like got stuck thinking that they're a glass of orange juice. It may have been acid, not mushrooms. Who knows? Um, That never happened. It's this like weird urban legend that's out there. No one is like in a psych ward thinking that they're a glass of orange juice being terrified to be too over. Not a real story. The other one of these is um, a friend of a friend had a snake and like the snake one day started like laying flat on the ground next to the owner and like kept doing that and like it was like not eating and so the owner calls the vet and they're like you know, my snake's acting kind of weird. It hasn't been eating. It keeps like laying really flat next to me, like straightening its body out. I don't know what's going on. And the vet is like, get out of the house immediately. Again, you may have heard some variation on this, maybe not like with the level of drama that I'm presenting it with, who knows, whatever. Um, but um, and then like once the person exits the house, the vet is like, oh, the reason that your snake is like laying flat next to you is that it's measuring you to see if it can eat you. And it's been starving itself to make room to eat you. Again, an urban legend, not a real thing. I was told the story when I was in high school by a close friend who said that it happened to a friend of a friend. And I obviously thought it was real. And I told the story to everyone and it made for like a fun party story. But then I read it somewhere and I realized that it's not real because it's not real. (laughs) It's not real. It's one of those urban legends that everyone says happened to a friend of a friend. But you know what is real? Blowing smoke up someone's ass. So if you want a fun story to tell at a party, that should be it. Anyway, um, okay. Okay. So here are some of the funny ones that I wrote down. Uh, In quotes, for what we talked about. Cool. Like, if you're going to be that secretive about it, why would you not just make the transaction private, you know? Eggs. I mean, like, who are you Venmoing for eggs? Like, that's what I just don't understand. Like, what's happening? Um, (laughs) This one I particularly loved. In quotes, I'll probably hate it. Um, Now, what I really love about this is, like, 
what do you mean you'll probably hate it? Like, what are you paying for? Because it almost sounds like it's like you're paying for a gift for yourself and you're like, well, I'll probably hate it, but I guess I'll pay for it. <laughs> or like some kind of surprise. I don't know. Or like, I don't know, but it's it's so fun. I love the idea that like someone is surprising you with something and you think you're going to hate it, but you also have to pay for it, apparently. <laughs> Um, someone that I'm Facebook friends with lost um, fantasy football in four different leagues because he Venmoed four different people. <laughs> and I really love that for him. And this is a guy that I once kissed um, my senior year of college. I had like kind of just broken up with a guy that I dated for a year and a half, although it wasn't like particularly serious. Um, and yeah, and he was like really good friends with that guy. And he just like started hitting on me while that guy and I were still dating, which was very brazen and just one way to live life. Um, and yeah, we kind of had this thing towards the end of my college. I mean, we didn't live in, you know, I was down in college. He was in DC, but I would be in town a decent amount. So I'd like see him and hang out with him and um, he made me a really nice dinner at one time really really nice dinner he's a good cook um, but like kind of a weird dude and definitely like was so serious about what was going on with us and I was just like you know like a dumb 21 year old like you know going to parties and like getting high and getting drunk and like you know was early into an eating disorder that I was very committed to um yeah it was it was kind of a weird thing it definitely like got very complicated like he was like very needy with me isn't it funny how like you could be like the neediest bitch but then like when someone acts like really needy with you it's like ugh <laughs> can't stand it um anyway so yeah, I love that he lost fantasy football in four different leagues. I really do love that for him. Um, someone else, cell phone for three months. Again, would love to know why they're paying someone for a cell phone for three months. Like, is this their primary cell phone? Like, I, I anyway, so many questions. Um, love this one in quotes, you all deserve it. Um, this is another one that you know, I think about like every single night when I got in bed, a round of drinks to forget about the car. What the fuck happened to the car? I mean, if you're going to make this shit public, at least give us the full story. What happened to the car? I think about this every single night as I climb into the bed. I'm like, you know, there's this person that I'm Facebook friends with. I don't even know who the fuck they are, but apparently some shit went down with a car that was bad enough that people had to Venmo each other for rounds of drinks for the car? Like what, how many people are involved? Like how much money was being thrown about? Because I'm guessing I'm not friends with the other people involved, but if they're all like out here Venmoing each other for this shit, like what happened? I don't know. Um, something I saw very commonly was like people's addresses. And it, I will say it seems like it was like maybe I'm, someone I'm Facebook friends with runs some kind of like cleaning service. So they're like putting in like the addresses of the houses that they've cleaned. But like, yo, I'm seeing a bunch of fucking people's addresses. Like, is this person aware that it's just public? It is just public. Anyone can see this shit. Like, are you like, have we just full on lost our minds? Like, it's like a half a step from just having your banking information fully public. Again, like, are people aware that other people can see this? Like, this is why I'm talking about this, because y'all are acting out here like you have no idea that people you're putting people's addresses out there. OK, anyway, sorry. Um, 
extortion. I really enjoyed that one. I mean, excellent work. Like if you're going to be funny, I guess have it be public, but like excellent work. Um, this one I really enjoyed explosive spike ball play. Um, explosive I should note is written with two X's. It's X X P L O S I V E, which is really the only way you should ever spell explosive. Um, I did Google this and apparently spike ball is some kind of game. Um, it looks like it involves a trampoline, but I actually think it might not be a trampoline. It might be some kind of a net type thing. Like, I don't think you can jump on it. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what kind of, uh, sport spike ball is, but it is a thing. Now I don't explosive, explosive (laughs) spike ball play did not yield anything, but spike ball is some kind of game. So I would love to know what it is about their spike ball that made it so explosive. But in any regard, I really do enjoy this energy. Um, Another one of my favorites is stop whining. Cool. Thanks. (laughs) Love that for us. Um, And the most common thing that I saw as the, you know, label or whatever for the memo line, if you will, for Venmo transactions, drum roll, please. Um, you will never see this coming or maybe you will see this coming. In fact, I'll give you a second to come up with a guess in your head and then I'll tell you what it was. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, ready? Sushi. Sushi is the most common thing that I saw people Venmo each other for, which makes sense because sushi is really expensive. So I can see how if you're sharing like a burger with someone, you know, you go out to get burgers, I can see you more commonly being like, oh, I'll get this one, you get the other, whatever. But I could see why people might be splitting sushi more so than anything. Or I wonder if when people are like Venmoing each other for drugs, sushi is the first thing that comes to mind to put as the lie. I used to do a lot of books work like 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 if you were to look at my Venmo history which you could not because it's private um you would see you would think she's very literate which would actually be a lie because all of my friends can attest to this I barely text I only send voice memos which is very Leah Michelle of me um anyway 
The story that I once heard that could be an urban legend because it happened to a friend of a friend was that there were these like roommates and one of them thought it would be funny (laughs) when Venmoing the other for rent to write in (laughs) the memo line ISIS dues. And um, apparently the feds went in and started investigating. And I mean, lucky for these people, they were like very white and Catholic and stuff. Like if I did that shit, I'd be in Guantanamo right now. But um, but yeah, that's the story I've heard. Now, I do want to say if you are someone with a small business and you are using Venmo for your small business, there was a pre-2002 rule regarding this, which was that if you had more than 200 transactions worth more than $20,000, Venmo has to issue tax forms. There is a new rule that lowers that threshold to $600, but the IRS has delayed implementing the new rule. Regardless, all quote-unquote income received on Venmo is taxable. Now, what is income? That's a very interesting question for a tax law class. We're not going to talk about that today because it would take a very long time. But, um, you know, if you have like a coaching service or something and you're charging via Venmo, you technically should be reporting that income to the IRS. Now, if your transactions are private and, you know, you could potentially get away with it. I'm not telling you to commit tax fraud, but like there are probably circumstances in which you could get away with it. But even if private Venmo may flag your account, it's not an ideal system to do business on. Like I remember my cleaning lady at some point was like, hey, could you start paying me in cash instead of Venmo because I can't afford to pay the taxes that I would have to do because I'd have to report the income on Venmo. So, you know, it's not really the safest way to avoid taxes. Of course, like we should not be trying to avoid taxes, but it is a fucked up system when your cleaning lady has to worry about her taxes and Jeff Bezos does not. You know what I mean? Like it is, it's our tax code is so convoluted and it's convoluted in part by design because we have a lot of subsidies built in to our tax code. It's it's kind of an easier way to pass subsidies than have to like pass it through Congress. So it is by design complicated. But the thing is like you kind of need like a fancy accountant to be able to take advantage of all the subsidies that are built in and the subsidies really are built in for the people who can't afford the accountants. It's a really, really fucked up system that we have. But in conclusion, um, I really think that you should make your Venmo transactions private. Otherwise, I will read them all and make fun of them on my podcast. Okay. Um, one last thing before we get into kind of like the topic du jour, if you will, um, So my niece is a year and a half years old and my sister-in-law is um, half Colombian and half Lebanese, but she grew up speaking Spanish fluently, um, not so much the Arabic side. Um, By the way, I know Shakira is also half Colombian and half Lebanese. And I guess what I've gathered is that there's a very large Lebanese population in Colombia and that's why this keeps happening. Although I will say my sister-in-law, and by that I mean my brother's wife, um, did used to tell people when she was younger that Shakira was her cousin, and I really love that for her. And she does kind of look like Shakira, which is fascinating to me. Anyway, so my sister-in-law is fluent in Spanish. She speaks to the bebe. 
um, in Spanish a lot. And my family is Iranian. We speak to the Bebe in Farsi a lot. Plus, my brother is also fluent in German, um, although I don't even think they've like really introduced the German. And then they primarily speak to each other in English. So this is a child who's in a very multilingual household. And they did a ton of research on this before the Bebe was born. And by the way, if you don't know that Bebe reference, it's from Schitt's Creek. And if you have not seen Schitt's Creek, drop everything and go watch it immediately because it's a fucking masterpiece of a show. That's our TV Rex for the week. Um, anyway, they did a ton of research on this. And apparently, like the best way that you can do it for the child is to have specific individuals in their lives associated with specific languages. So like Catherine, my sister-in-law, only speaks to her in Spanish. Um, although she does throw in a little English here and there. Or like it can be two languages. So Catherine only does English and Spanish, primarily Spanish. Um, you know, they have a Yaya who helps them, which is, you know, just like someone who helps with the baby. And um, she only speaks to her in Spanish, I believe. My brother speaks to her in English and in Farsi. Um, I speak to her in English and in Farsi. Um, my parents only speak to her in Farsi. So like so long as I, I that's my understanding. Again, I don't know. But that's my understanding of like what the research suggests is the healthiest way to do this is like so that she doesn't get too, too, too confused. She should have like she should know what language to explain expect from specific people. Now, what does always happen with children who grow up in multilingual households is they generally start speaking late because it's confusing. But then oftentimes once they start speaking, they know all the languages, which is so fascinating to me. Um, so because they were fully aware that she would probably start speaking late, and I have to say, I don't think she's that late. She's a year and a half and she does say words, you know, like I thought she'd be a lot later. Like a, words at a year and a half is normal. Now, when I was a year and a half, I was fluent fluent, speaking full sentences in Farsi, not English, but speaking full sentences. But that really tells you something about me. And what I think that tells you is that she has the gift of the gab. Anyway, um, knowing full well that she'd probably start speaking late, they started to teach her ASL, sign language. And um, this was fascinating to me because I was like, how the fuck do you teach a child sign language? Because the way that they learn like speaking language is they watch and they emulate, right? That's how kids learn everything, actually. They just watch us be and do, and they start being and doing as we are and do. So that's something to keep in mind if you want to have a child, like go to therapy first so that they're not like emulating your bad behaviors. Um, and that's really like the thing with attachment styles, like our attachment styles are kind of generational trauma. Like we tend to, if you have anxious parents, you tend to be anxious because they're misattuned to your needs and like more tuned into their own needs for like excessive love and comfort. So they'll be like kissing you and doing things that you don't actually want to do. Anyway, that's not the topic right now. Anyway, so they start teaching her like little signs here and there. And I was like fascinated by this when I was home for Christmas. And afterwards, I remember when I got back, I was talking to Catherine and I was like, hey, Catherine, um, random question, but like, how the fuck do you teach a child sign language? And she's like, well, we started signing. And so she started copying our signing. And I was like, oh, OK, so she's just like a little baby genius. No big deal. Um and then Catherine said something that I spent like two weeks thinking about nonstop. She goes, yeah, it's been really helpful in particular, when she learned the sign for help, it was really great because 
instead of getting frustrated when she couldn't figure out something or do something on her own, she now just signs for help and we help her. And she's a much happier baby as a result. Now, the amount that I spent thinking about this, because I, this is like, we need to all embrace the energy of my baby niece, right? Like, instead of getting frustrated because she can't do something on her own, she just asks for help. Now, think about the last 10 times that you were frustrated, you could have asked for help, but we don't, especially like I hate to like gender stereotype, but like I think gender stereotypes exist not because I think like genetically women and men are so different. I think it's because we raise women and men so differently and that's how the differences come in. And we really praise women for doing, 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 and not asking for help. I mean, I don't know, maybe we do it with both genders. I don't know. I don't have the lived experience of having been raised as a man, so I'm not entirely sure. But we have such a hard time asking for help. And we, I think, have all grown up in a time period where it was really like praised to be doing all the time and helping and like just being an island and being hyper independent. And although I do think being independent is so important, it does, like with everything else in life, it's a balance, right? And if you are too independent, that's also no good. Anyway, so I guess like my kind of like thing that I want to hit at is look at your life and see where you can start asking for help. Be more like my one and a half year old niece who will try to do things on her own. And when she cannot, she just asks for help. She just asks for help. It's that fucking simple. And that's why she's so goddamn happy because she is not burning herself at the stake trying to do things that she could easily just get help with and then do those very things. Oh my God, we are running so late and I still have so many things I want to get to. So yeah, in conclusion, ask for help. Um, Okay, I'm going to skip this astrology rant and we'll get into the astrology rant next week. Um, Okay, so I kind of want to talk about like five scenarios that have shown up in my DMs via you guys. And I want to discuss whether they're red or green flags or somewhere in between. And I think some of the answers will surprise you. So the first two were submitted by the same listener and they were just like beautiful, stunning works of art. And I want to really um, get into them. So I'm going to read them verbatim. The last three are like, I just wrote them because they're situations that I see come up over and over and over again. Okay, number one, is it a red flag if a guy you're talking to slash dating Insta following list is majority of hot celebrity women or like Instagram models who only post bikini pictures? Okay, I know exactly what you mean. Is it a red flag if he likes them? And how would you feel if Ozzy did this slash how would you go about talking to him if it did? Love this question. I have a lot to say on this and 
like I will say before I get into anything, this is truly a matter of personal preference. And I think people are allowed to have whatever boundary they want to have. But I do have a funny story on this. I remember when like Ozzy and I were first following each other, which was like a while in because like we dated remember from Thanksgiving of 2020 until like January of 2021. And then he went, but like not exclusively together. He went to Australia. He came, it wasn't really until like, I was like with the van guy, I think that we started following each other on Instagram. Um, maybe even, no, I think it was while I was dating van guy that Ozzy and I started following each other on Instagram. And I remember kind of like looking through, or like maybe before all that, I was like looking through his Instagram and I thought he like followed a lot of Instagram hoes or something like that. So like, I really did have that perception of him in my head. And then I remember once we were like together at some point, I like brought, I was like, yeah, you follow so many Instagram hosts. And he's like, what are you talking about? No, I don't. And, um, and he doesn't even really like use Instagram. Oh, and then specifically, so there was like that, that I followed, thought he followed a lot of Instagram hosts. And then more specifically, there's this one chick that he follows who he's friends with, although like not really anymore. But there's this chick in Australia who he like has been friends with for many, many years and is also like hooked up with on and off. And I remember once making a comment about how he only likes her photos that are like slutty and he doesn't like like the photos of her artwork and stuff like that. Okay, so these two different comments that I once made. Right. And so he's like, wait, what are you talking about? So you like pulls up his Instagram. We start looking through he's through who he's following. And yes, he does follow a few Instagram hoes, but they're all like his friends, girlfriends or partners or like people he actually literally knows. So they're not like, like, like he's not just like following random Instagram hosts. So I was like, oh, okay, I stand corrected. Like my perception of this was wrong. And then with that girl from Australia where I was like, yeah, you only like her thoughty photos. You don't like her like artsy photos or whatever. Again, we like looked through her Instagram and I was wrong about that too. Like he liked some of her thoughty photos, but also like a lot of her just like normal photos of her paintings and random shit. So it just seemed to more like he ran like probably whatever photo popped up on on his feed he liked. So I was actually wrong on both counts. Now, the reason I bring this up is because sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we just see something and it like triggers us and we're like, boom. And so like, I'd be really sure that this is actually even happening to begin with. Now, here's the thing. Like, I don't like, okay. I personally wouldn't care if my boyfriend watched porn, right? And the, I, I'm, I don't even know if I'm in the majority in that because I did a poll once on TikTok and I was kind of surprised to see that most people did have an issue with their partners watching porn, which I was fascinated by because like, I literally couldn't care less. Ozzy can watch all the porn he fucking wants to watch. I'll watch it with him. I'll try things out from porn if he wants. Like, to me, it's like literally not that not a thing, but and like on the one hand, like Instagram is like definitely not as like quote unquote bad as porn, right? Like you're not gonna see like labia flaps, you know, <laughs> flapping around in the wind. But 
in another way, I almost think it's like kind of worse. Like, I don't know. Like, is there like, is anyone listening who's like, yeah, I wouldn't care if my boyfriend watched porn, but I would care if he was like just following a bunch of Instagram hoes. I don't know. Like, I think. I think that you are allowed to have whatever boundary that you want. And if it makes you uncomfortable, I understand why. And ultimately, this is what I'll come down to. If Ozzy was like just following a ton of Instagram hoes, yes, I wouldn't like it. Not because he'd be looking at a bunch of like chicks, like half naked bodies that I couldn't care less about. Because again, the porn I wouldn't care, and they're more naked in porn than they are on Instagram. Although these days it's like barely, but still, um, it's not the half naked bodies. It's what it would imply about his character. And I think that that's what you're ultimately asking, right? I mean, you literally said, is it a red flag? And like, I don't know, maybe like it just to me, the association that I would have with a dude who's just like following a ton of Instagram hoes is that he's like kind of like a broy, sleazy kind of guy. That's just the association that I would make. Now, is there, you know, there are no like double blind studies on this. So like, can I prove that? No. Um, and do I think you should write someone off because of this? Also, no, because like if they're just like really wonderful and like, let's say like, let's say like I could I could envision a world in which like I, I I probably have guy friends who are like really wonderful, nice guys, but like follow tons of Instagram hoes and they're like, I yeah, this is porn for me. You know what I mean? I don't know. I could envision a world where like two things can be true at once and it's actually not a red flag. That being said, I think that everyone is entitled to their own boundaries and no boundary is like too much or like you're not being like whatever. And this is exactly how I would approach it if I was in the situation and it bothered me. This is word for word what I would say. So write this down. <laughs> hey, I know this may feel silly to you, but it makes me super uncomfortable that you follow slash like scantily clad women on Instagram. Do you think you can stop? Now, I think before you say that, you should actually just have a conversation about it and like why they do and like what it means to them. And like, you know what I mean? Because like, again, it could like... I would look a lot more at like overall behavior instead of like making a snap judgment based on this. But like maybe I would take it as an orange flag, a yellow flag. You know what I mean? It's not nothing. And again, if it bothers you, that's enough for you to be entitled to ask for it to stop. And I think you should also be able to have like an overall conversation because I think that this leads to a bigger thing of like porn, OnlyFans. I think OnlyFans is a bit different than porn because you can like engage with the OnlyFans artists. I don't, I don't know. Creators, creators. That's the word, right? Like that's a whole separate thing. I think we need to be very clear on what our boundaries are and like what is okay for us and what is not okay for us. And the fact that that's different for different people. I mean, I personally like I'm a very flirtatious person. Like I don't think it's a big deal for me to like run around town flirting with people. Like I just like, it's not like, you know, sexual flirting, but it's like, 
like I like to be a little flirtatious. I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think it bothers Ozzy, but like I've dated guys who would, it has bothered. And like, listen, I'm a loyal fucking bitch. Like I'm never going to cheat ever, ever, ever. Um, and I think Ozzy knows that and did like, he, like to him, it's like, I'm just being friendly and I am just being friendly. It's just, you know, friendly plus, um, I don't think it's a big deal. You know, like we all have different boundaries. Um, the, I don't think it's a big deal was in reference to my flirting, but like in conclusion, we all have very different boundaries and it's important to know where yours are and also be able to have a conversation about it. Right. Like I could see a world in which Ozzy's like, yo, you're so flirtatious with random people. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I just like, I think it's like fun to be like friendly with like a hint of extra. I just think it spices things up. I don't mean anything by it. I'm certainly not like, you know, getting dudes numbers or anything like that. And I'm also very vocal about the fact that I have a boyfriend. I don't think I like lead with sexual energy. It's more just like fun and playful energy. Like, you know what I mean? I think we should be able to have really open conversations about these things. Um, so yeah, that's that on that. But if you follow up on this, like do not hesitate to reach out. And that also goes for everyone who's like in the DMs and the Q&A service, et cetera. If you follow up, like let's follow it up, baby, you know? Okay, moving right along. When I was 18, I was entering college and newly single. Long story short, a guy I was interested in started messaging me on Insta and that led to texts. I would always end up falling asleep during our combo, so I would message him the next morning, but the guy one time called me out and literally said, you know you're the girl, right? You should always have the guy text you first because if you do it, it makes you look easy. Yep, traumatized. But now I feel this is fucking up my life even as an adult, so I would love to hear your take on this. Is there a golden rule for who should text you first? Okay, like, A, let's just, like, start out with, like, this is the biggest red flag I've ever fucking heard. Um, also, like, you weren't texting first. You were replying. So that's the part that's, like, the most insane to me. Like, texting first is initiating conversation, but like replying after you fall asleep. I mean, the amount that I used to do that shit when I was like playing games where I would like not reply for like 24 hours and then reply, that's still not texting first, but that's like actually starting to border on texting first. But like if you're genuinely falling asleep and then resuming conversation, like that is not fucking texting first. And it blows my mind that this man said this to you. Is there a golden rule? No. There are gender roles that we are still somewhat like tethered to as a society. And I will say like when I was dating and I really do have to differentiate like when I was dating pre-working on my attachment wounds and post-working on my attachment wounds, because when I was still like deep in like attachment trauma place, I was playing a lot of fucking games. And so like part of the games was like I would never text a guy first or I've been on both sides of this, actually, to be completely honest, because I remember in law school, I had a crush on a guy that I went to law school with and we were friends and like sometimes we'd get drunk and like make out but like we were friends like we're in the same friend group and like we would be like um Facebook messenger yeah I guess we would Facebook messenger a lot and like I would initiate conversation with him a lot 
a lot. Like it was like cringe. Like I was so into him and it was like, he was like kind of into me, but like definitely not like as seriously into me as I was into him. Um, super, super cringe. And then like there, you know, was the phase of my dating where I like refused to text a guy first ever. Um, and like took it to like an, a real extreme and would like really string out my responses and time everything out, yada, yada. Ideally, I think it should feel kind of effortless. And here's the thing. I think when you do a lot of that inner work, what ends up happening is you put a lot less thought into how you're texting, how long you're waiting, etc. Although I kind of have this thing now with... um like in a platonic situation, I have it a little bit because there's like someone that has like, I've like been so like fangirl obsessed with. And I recently like got to know where I might talk about this soon. But like sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't want to like read her text too soon or like whatever. Um, it happens like, you know, you get excited. I, 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 I get it. So after I did all the attachment work, then when like Ozzy and I started, um, hanging out again, like, yeah, generally he would text me first. Like he generally would text me every day. And so like I just kind of reply. Like nowadays I text him first sometimes, um, especially like when he's more busy, et cetera. I think it should feel effortless. I don't think that you, there is like any sort of golden rule. I do think that we live in a society that is like really emphasized that like men should be initiating. And so like the one thing I'll say is like after a first date, et cetera, I always like to wait for a guy to text because they will text if they're interested, you know? So it was like a good gauge of like, okay, is he actually interested? Because after a, after a date, they will message you if they are interested. And I also think it's like a good, like if a guy waits like several days to text you after like a first date or something, like, you know, that he's playing games. And so that's like a good screener for me also. Um, so yeah, is there a golden rule? No, but like, we do still live in like a very patriarchal society where I know I can't say that word. I don't know why I can't say that word that I will never understand. If someone wants to send me like a voice memo of you saying, patriarchal and um you know just like really teach me how to say it because like for whatever reason I really struggle with it it's kind of like do you remember when George W. Bush was in office and he couldn't say nuclear and um <laughs> he was unfortunately president during a time where he had to say the word nuclear quite a bit that was fun anyway um <laughs> yeah I think that we live in this society where it does like really emphasize that men should be initiating, et cetera. But like what you were doing was literally replying to a text. And so like that, I don't even think that counts as texting first count. Uh, texting first is like when you're just bringing something up out of the blue. Um, now I will say, I think in early dating texting quality over quantity and also like I think it's so fun when you save as much as possible for in person and like don't blow too much via texting, you know, because like you have the ability to see each other. So like really try to get to know each other in person as much as possible rather than blowing it all via texting. But no, like overall, I'd say like don't put too much thought in it. Um, let if you want, let the guy come to you after a first date, et cetera, things like that. But like yeah, if you see something that like is like an inside joke, whatever, you want to start a conversation, 
do it. But like, don't have like it. Sh- it shouldn't feel like you're chasing him, right? But it doesn't sound like this was at all. Now, this to me is, I think, a man who has a tremendous amount of internalized misogyny. Like in my experience, men who tell women how they should behave are the most fucking toxic. So I'm so happy that this never went anywhere. And I can't put my finger on exactly what it is, but this guy gives me the heebie-jeebies. Okay, situation number three. Um, I'm paraphrasing a lot of different types of DMs that I've gotten. So dating a man who treats you right, but doesn't like verbally say all the things. So he's not like talking about like uh, a future with you, but he's introducing you to his family. You know, he's maybe not like saying I love you, but like he's showing you love, like all these things, right? A lot of different scenarios of this. So what I have to say about this is I actually think this is kind of a green flag in most scenarios because actions over words always. And two things on this. Number one, some men seem to have a really hard time communicating. There is this like false statistic out there that on average women use 20,000 words per day and men use 7,000 words per day. There have been many, many, many different types of and formulations of studies on this and research shows that there's actually like a negligible difference between the number of words that men and women say per day. Nevertheless, nevertheless, oh my God. Um, There's a reason why we seem to think this, like there's definitely this trope out there that like men don't talk a lot and women are always like yap, 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 yapping, right? And I think the reason that we think this is because men often have a harder time communicating feelings. And I think this goes back to the fact that we don't raise women and men the same way. And we raise women to be more in touch with their feelings. We don't raise men to like nurture and even notice their feelings, much less be able to talk about them. And, you know, I think this is changing in this day and age and time. But, you know, we grew up in a very different time. And there also aren't a lot of examples of men who were in touch with their emotions and verbalize them. Like those aren't the types of traits that we as a society have nurtured in men. Again, they'd be perfectly capable of doing it. It's not like there's something about having external genitalia that like makes your mouth cut off. It's just that those aren't the traits that we've nurtured in men. Also, I've seen this a lot with guys. I think that sometimes like even if they're like really, really into you, but like not like ready to make like some kind of bigger commitment, there's something about verbalizing things that makes it feel more formal and more real. And, you know, Ozzy took a really long time to say I love you to me. Like it was like very strange. And he definitely has both of these things. But like one thing he would talk about a lot was like how he felt insecure and he felt like really unsure. And there would be times where he'd be like, are you sure that you like me? Like, is it like like to him, he was like, he'd have almost like imposter syndrome with me and feel really like, oh my God, she's going to find out that I'm not like as amazing as she thinks that I am and is going to be so let down. And so he was like really terrified of just saying those words because he was so like afraid that everything would blow up in his face, which is so interesting. So questions that I would ask yourself are like, number one, are your needs being met? Number two, like, why do you want more verbal reassurance? Number three, 
if you knew for a fact, like beyond a shadow of doubt that this guy's like so fucking into you and love with you, sees a future with you, et cetera, would you still need it to be said verbally or would you just like live in full peace if you knew beyond a shadow of doubt like let's say you had a brain scanner and you could see inside his brain and you could see all the things that he thinks about you all the time which is that he loves you and adores you and like thinks that you'll probably end up together and is like nervous and this and that and you knew that all those things for a fact would you care that they're not being said Because I think a lot of the time we want, like even like I remember taking the love languages quiz a few years ago and getting words of affirmation. And I don't think it's like, I think this is the problem with things like this, right? Like, especially when we're like testing ourselves, sometimes it's just a snapshot of where we are in time based on the level of unprocessed trauma that we have in that moment, right? I don't think like I would get words of affirmation now because I feel a lot more secure in myself. So I don't feel the need for verbal reassurance as much as I once did. So like really like go in and be like, okay, is it actually that I need things verbalized so much or is it because my insecurities are coming up. And if it's the latter, then like what other ways does he show love? And here's the thing, like I said before, ultimately we are allowed to have whatever boundaries we need. And I don't think that you ever need to deny something that you truly, truly need if you actually truly need it. I just don't want you to write off someone who treats you well for something that isn't an actual authentic need and is more just a need for more reassurance. So like you, and only you know that answer because there probably are people out there who like authentically, genuinely need words said to them all the time. And there are other people, and I would argue the majority of people who think they really want words of affirmation are people who just want it said verbally to alleviate some type of anxiety. So you need to figure out which of the two things you are and you need to communicate these things. Okay. Um, a lot of versions of this dating someone who takes you on very extravagant first or second dates or even third dates, someone who talks about how amazing you are on date one or date two, someone who drops, I love you in the first few weeks, um, talks about the future with you on like a first ish date, essentially like themes of like people moving a relationship really, really quickly. This to me is the biggest red flag. And I just want to note, like they can say nice things or talk about the future in general, but when they're like really gushing really early on, it's very different. And I will say 99% of the time, there's always an outlier, but 99% of the time, one of three things is going on. Number one, they're playing you to get something. Could be sex, could be money, could be to alleviate their own loneliness or alleviate their own anxiety. Number two, love bombing, like narcissistic type behavior. Or number three, they have anxious attachment and they're trying to force a quicker connection to calm their own nervous system, which kind of overlaps with number one. And here's where it gets tricky. If you have anxious attachment as the recipient of this, nothing feels as good. 
Also with codependency, right? Nothing feels as good as someone like from the get-go, like just gushing about how amazing you are and how much they love you and like how great this is going. And like constant, like I remember when I was first dating the comedian, he would constantly be like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Everything is so amazing. Like blah, blah, blah. He would constantly, like it was so meta. He was constantly talking about what was happening with us rather than just being in it. But obviously I wasn't well-versed enough in this work to recognize the love bombing and that he like literally has narcissistic personality disorder to be like, this is problematic. Instead, I was like, I am amazing. No, this is amazing. Like, you're so right. Oh my God. Like, it feels so good. It does feel so good when you are still in that place where you need all that reassurance. Once you do that inner work, you then instantly are like, wait, but like, you don't know me well enough. Like, here's the thing. You are wonderful. You are amazing. The scenario could be great, but the picture that I painted for you basically is a stranger who is like constantly praising you and your connection, which is barely a thing because you've only been out on a couple of dates. So it's like someone who's healthy wouldn't do this. And beyond that, this person doesn't actually know you well enough to be singing your praises. They've only seen several hours of you. They don't know you well enough. So it's not actually authentic to you. And I think that's where you can tell on which side of the work you are. When you're still like really anxiously attached or like really codependent or like really need the praise, those things feel intoxicatingly good. When you've done a lot of that work and a lot of those like attachment wounds and traumas are worked through, you'll feel really icky by this because you'll be like, but you don't even know me. Like, why are you taking me to the most extravagant first date? You don't even know me, you know? But before you've done that work, you're like, oh my God, he's so obsessed with me. He's like flying me here. But like when you do the work, you're like, wait, do you just do this for all your first dates? Because that's like fucking weird, you know? So yeah, I think it, this is the biggest red flag. And if you are like, again, I'm talking early, early, early stages of dating someone and they're exhibiting this behavior and you're really enjoying it, please sign up for the Blush Academy and work through those attachment traumas so that you're not fooled by this. Because what I can predict is more likely than not, a very difficult relationship is ahead of you at best. Okay, last but not least, they spend a lot of time comparing you to their exes. And this is not like a one-off or a two-off but it's like a regular occurrence where they're like, oh my God, I love the fact that like you eat chips because my ex was always dieting or like, oh my God, I love the fact that like you're not allergic to peanuts because like my ex was allergic to peanuts and like it was so difficult. We could never go get Asian food or like, oh my God, I love the fact that like you're so funny because my ex wasn't funny or like, oh my God, you're so much prettier or like blah, blah, blah. If it's like a regular occurrence, they have some baggage there. And I'm not saying that like they still love their ex and want to get back together. But what I am saying is like they haven't worked through something. Now, do you want to date someone who like still has baggage with their ex? Maybe, maybe that's fine for you. I'm not sure, but just know if you, the ex is constantly coming up and especially like, it's not like they have to come up in a positive way. It's usually in a negative way. And it's usually like comparing you in a positive light. And that can feel really, really good. Especially God, I remember again, when I was first dating the comedian, he would constantly compare me to like other girls in his life and like how much funnier, prettier, smarter, skinnier I am 
who doesn't want to hear that shit? I mean, I was on cloud nine. I remember once being out to drinks with his friends and like literally for two hours, the topic of conversation was how much thinner and hotter I am than any girl he's ever dated. And I was like, this is quite literally the best night of my life. Like, <laughs> like nothing could feel better than this. But now in retrospect, I'm like, why were we even talking about his exes so much? Like that's fucking weird. Like, if it's a regular occurrence, that's a fucking red flag. So there we have it. My five scenarios, the answers may have shocked you. They may have not have shocked you. But like, really, I think the three biggest takeaways from this episode, number one, please ask for help when you need help. Number two, make your Venmo transactions private. And number three, um, talk about blowing smoke up people's asses. I mean, <laughs> what a way. And like, in conclusion, to bring it full circle, I think that explains why we use it now as like a complimentary thing, because historically it was something you did to like save someone's life. And I mean, before they added the bellows to the contrapment, it really like you were kind of risking your own life in order to save other people's. So that's that on that. Thank you so much for listening. It was the 100... <laughs> Excuse me. It was the 113th episode for anyone who gives a shit for any reason at this point. I don't really know. Um, love you guys. We'll talk next week. Um, if you are someone who's submitted something and you have follow-ups, follow it up. If you have other things you want to hear on the podcast, hit a girl up. Um, we will talk about my astrology rant next week. <sighs> Love you guys. This is fun. I missed I missed having the one-on-one -on -one with you guys. Um and yeah, if you have questions for Dr. Dahlia, please submit them for the next time we record together. Okay, love you guys. Rate, review, subscribe. You know the drill. Um, it takes like 13 seconds for you and it's 13 billion times helpful for me. Those numbers make no sense, but you got the drift. I drift, drift, like what am I saying? Like have I full on lost my fucking mind? Um, you get the idea. It's it's really tremendously helpful for the podcast. So if you could just take a few minutes and leave a five-star review about, you know, how amazing and insightful and knowledgeable I am. If you want to just blow a little smoke up my ass in the comment section, that would be greatly appreciated. Share it with your family, friends. I mean, maybe not your family, more so your friends. Who knows? Share it far and wide. Share it with someone who would take something from this. Share it with, if you have a friend who's in one of those five scenarios, share it with that person. Share it, share it, like it, comment it, save it, subscribe, whatever. You get the troll. Love you guys. Bye.